Hello and welcome to episode 279 of the Rand Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm Angel. I'm Kevin. And uh, if this were an episode of, bear with me here, if this was an episode of, uh, let's say, Pee-wee's Playhouse or something, the secret word of the show that would probably get all the furniture flailing and screaming would be adaptation. It applies to practically everything in this episode. We've got our takes on the Sonic 2 movie, um, plus where video game movie adaptations and Sega, for that matter, uh, look to be hanging next. We have impressions of a Switch indie called Terrorbane, which adapts and really parodies uh, a lot of other games' mechanics and tropes in a very meta way. And we actually have a couple um, copies of it to give away, too. So we'll explain how you can win that a little later in the show. But we also have Nintendo adapting their uh, summer game release calendar to accommodate what seems to be some sort of switcheroo of Xenoblade and Splatoon, including some new Splatoon details. Um, really, I think the only topic that doesn't fit our word of the day is the return of our anniversary series in which we're going to be reflecting on 25 years of Kevin, your favorite franchise, or one of your favorites, Persona. Let's go. Um, yeah, so throughout all that, there's some other news too, and of course, we always specifically list those out with timestamps from Amazon.com, and the blog post for this episode is no different. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's I guess, just really start with um, not so much what we've been playing, but what we've been watching, our episode's namesake, we're calling the episode Ann Knuckles, and that's because... He showed up in Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which, um... Whoa, spoilers. Yes, major spoilers if you haven't seen any single bit of footage of that movie. But, um... You'd be Angel, surprised, there are people that actually do that. That's true, yeah, like, go, go, go I don't think that this blackout. would be the audience that wouldn't see that, but... Yeah, yeah, and, and to be clear, as we talk about Sonic, I'm sure there'll be some light spoilers, and if we get into more serious spoilers, we'll indicate as much for those who haven't seen it yet, but... Angel, you've seen it twice, right? Uh-huh. And Kevin, you've seen it. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. I haven't even seen the original. Okay, so co- collectively, uh, I guess we have the equal number of viewings as we do people on this podcast, just not evenly dispersed. So I, I guess it still it still works. So sorry, Kevin, we might... I don't want to bore you too much, but... Um, That's okay. Just like Sonic, my impression will be kind of quick, because there isn't that much to say about it. Okay, well, Angel, as the one with the most experience with the movie, what do you want to say about it? Uh, I don't... Man, this movie... It definitely gets worse with multiple watches, I will say that. <laughs> um, I, I can see that. I I mean, I will say, like, right off the bat, just, like, so that doesn't get, like, misconstrued. Like, I obviously really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely came out... I, like, you know, biggest takeaways both times was, like, Man, like they they did it right. They they did a lot of they did a lot of things that I like. I just wish they would have, you know, that a Sonic movie would have. Like it, it just checked off a lot of boxes. Like it, they, you know, they they clearly know the fan base. They are clearly fans. You know, a lot of positivity around. But mm-hmm. I think the first time I was watching it, I was definitely like so, like you know, just kind of mystified by like. You know, anytime Tails was on screen, anytime Knuckles was on screen, anytime like anything happened, my mind would still be like, like, oh man, that was so cool that they actually did this or did that. That when we get to, you know, the middle part of the movie or like any part of the movie where, you know, you could almost call it filler. Like I almost didn't mind it because I was pretty much still like preoccupied, just like reminiscing or taking in about what of, like, or, or taking in a lot of the saw. movie. Yeah. But yeah. the second time I saw it, when it was more like, 
cool. I've already experienced it once. I know what's coming. I'm actually just going to be looking in the back for details or stuff that I missed. Oh my god, like, these sections, like, what I thought, like, more specifically, like, there's, like, a wedding scene towards, like, the middle, late half of the movie, and there's a couple scenes that take place inside a coffee shop. This is also, like, not the beginning coffee shop scene, but this part in the coffee shop scene where no one is there except for the Stone character and this local sheriff dude, or sometimes just Stone. But basically, anytime it's not about the CG animals, man, like... Those scenes just felt like they took forever. Like, when I was watching that wedding scene the second time, I was like, wow, was it this long? I remember it feeling like four or five minutes. Like, it just felt, like, really short. But now it felt like, Jesus, like, we're still here? Like, come on. <laughs> like, I finally got, like... Because I, I remember that I hearing that complaint a lot. And I remember the first time watching it thinking, like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Like, you know, it had, like, a few funny moments. It just kind of happened and came and went. But no, it felt like it overstayed its welcome. It felt like, man, are we still at that point where budget is so tight that we have to dedicate this much time to the people? Because I, I don't think it was that. Uh. I feel like it was Sonic 1 was like the kind of fish-out-of-water story, so they had all these human characters. In Sonic 2, they kind of move away from that. But I don't think they, whether contractually or just because they didn't want to, I don't think they wanted, they could drop those human characters. They had to figure out a weird way to work them in. So, like, Adam Pally's, like, sheriff guy had, like, I mean, it's obviously much no purpose than the first one. he was there before. Oh, yeah. So he's there again. Um, I would say, yeah, as a fan watching it a second time, yeah, it definitely got annoying. But that's only because I watched it, you know, a second time literally a week later. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, do, I do think, like, the scraps of Sonic 1, you know, the human stuff really kind of demonstrated... Um, and I tweeted this silly pun right after uh, seeing it, but I do still stand by it, and I do really mean it. I think the first Sonic movie walked so that Sonic 2 could run. And what I mean by that is I think because Sonic 1 was able to prove itself, especially after the initial design backlash and whatnot, and be so well-received by fans, um, that opened the door for Sonic 2 to lean much further in, all the way in, if you will, on the video game element. But they still did need to have those little pieces that connected it back to Sonic 1, and that meant for better or worse, all returning characters, which meant they had to do some of these human segments. Like, it just, it, it was like the, the they couldn't just drop, I guess Sega felt, or not Sega, sorry, uh, Paramount felt they couldn't just drop it entirely. Again, maybe contract reasons, I don't know. Um, but it does, when it's not doing those parts, go full video game. And, it, and, and I don't mean like, dressing up Jim Carrey as more of a Dr. Robotnik, you know, mustache and red jacket and all. I mean like the plot, the whole like, once you get past that wedding scene you kept referencing, like that whole back third of the movie, like the shot for shot, like tornado biplane and giant Robotnik robot from Sonic 2, like the, the game, um, the the slight minor spoilers, like the Labyrinth Zone to get the emerald, the, the fact that there was an emerald, like mission in the first place, like, I don't know, just as like scenarios and plot points and all that, it just felt so video gamey in an industry where they try so hard to normalize the stories. And it does feel like they're kind of bridging that gap with some of the human stuff where, you know, if you look at Sonic 1, like I was saying a second ago, it was kind of a fish out of war story. It really boiled down to like, look at this wacky guy from a video game. Now he's in our world. Isn't that crazy? Uh, and sure, it worked then and it was fine. But to see Sonic 2 just kind of let go of most of that, most of that, <laughs> um, 
you know, and just kind of recreate like the most video game moments you can imagine. Like that, I thought was really cool and, and vastly overshadowed the wedding scene and and the coffee shop scene and and all that. At least to me. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, it did the first time. Like I completely yeah. didn't like it didn't bother me at all with that second viewing. It's the second time, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I. I but even even in those human scenes, like I think part of why the movie, at least on one viewing, works so well, is because even beyond like the larger gamey plot points, like they did a good job of integrating nods to the games. Like in those human scenes in particular, like to, you know, uh, there's little bits of fan service. They have the abilities. Like there were a couple that were purely for show. I think uh, specifically involving Sonic. Like at one point, he does a Sonic Adventure pose, or one that I kind of liked was how he fell off a, a fishing boat and did his little uh, drowning animation from the game. For a split oh, I, second. But, but I don't count either but, of those, though. What? Oh, what was that? Wait, were you referring to those as the music scenes? I mean, the human scenes that were a problem? or just No, 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 no. no. I'm saying, like, they did some fancier stuff. Like, some of them were more, like, purely for show like that. But in the human scenes, I was kind of building towards it. But in the human scenes, like, they had some nods to at least if you're a fan being like, oh, okay. Like, the coffee shop you mentioned was called Mean Bean. And it's like, oh, his store, his, like, robotic front is the meme bean. That makes sense. Like, at one point, they do some gag about, like, how we look up some tech advice on one of Robotnik's things, and it's, like, you know, they pulled a manual, and it's, like, the Genesis cover design. And, like, they tried throughout to do little bits and pieces. Obviously, the more interesting stuff was, like, when they showed the CG animals, and you had Knuckles, like, climbing exactly the same animation he does in Adventure 2 uh, Battle, or, like, I know at one point you saw something that reminded you of Sonic Heroes, like some series of sequence of attacks or something when the three of them were together, right? No, yeah, yes, like those those were more like, oh my god, video game, but even in the parts where it was like human, they still tried to weave it in a little. Um, and like the story could work without a lot of those things, right? Like obviously it could work without the human segments, obviously it could work without the Easter eggs. Some of the like specific animations and attacks they could do without it would still work. But I think the way they brought it all together, at least on a first viewing, um, you know, the character-specific moments, the designs of, of manual covers, the name of the store, like, the way it all kind of came together, it reminded me a lot of um, the world-building in that I like so much in Detective Pikachu. I mean, of course, a huge part of Detective Pikachu is bringing Pokemon to life, but even the way they designed the shops around Rhyme City or just sort of integrated items from the game into the different scenes, like, I just kind of got that vibe from a lot of what Sonic 2 was doing. Like, it just add, added up to being, like, so much more than just hey, Tom lives in a town called Green Hill. What a coincidence. Like, it felt more, like, integrated this time. So even the human stuff, like, even the wedding scene, they make a reference to Gun. And it's just like, oh, okay, that that's kind of a thing that ties back to Sonic more directly. Um, So, like... I mean, is it a, a shadow, reference but... when it's, like, blatantly supposed to be? Well, that's my point. That's my point. It wasn't just, like, a random human scene. It had a plot point that tied back into the main characters. It wasn't completely out yeah, of Yeah, it eventually field. did, but so. also... Damn, yeah, you really have to turn your brain off for that because, like, not, yeah, like, ugh, the, the whole reason, the, 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 well, the whole reason, like, the wedding happened just felt incredibly dumb, as well as, like, you know, how they, you know, the whole, like, ring management thing, like, yeah, it's supposed to be silly, but, man. Oh, yeah, that was dumb. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Some of it was a little forced. But the the world building around those like, four segments, like, like, yeah. yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, it was right, yeah. But you know, like, like I said, obviously, like, I didn't really think about any of this stuff until like the second time I watched it. 
Yeah. But, yeah, and I've only seen it once, so it's still like I didn't have that chance to like stew on the s- stupid parts. Um although actually if we want to talk about stupid parts, the one drawback for me with this movie is that this sounds dumb, I know, but at the end of the day it was still a kids movie, which is totally fine. Like, you know, a lot of sonic humor fits that mold, you know, nonstop quips from both him and Robotnik. You know, it would be frankly weird and more like serious, like edgy approach to the franchise. Um, but there are just some moments. I mean, the Wang's one you're getting hooked on, but there are just some moments that really felt like the creative team hitting you over the head with like, yes, this is a kids movie. It is for kids. Like, okay, sure, there are fart jokes, whatever. But there's a whole dance off sequence they did, like when they were out near like Siberia or something, and they set to Uptown Funk randomly, and that just felt. I don't know, un- unnecessary. Like I, I, it, I don't want to say it rubbed me the wrong way, but just because of how out of place it was for Sonic, even in like, even though so many kids movies do lean on pop song segments, like, not every kids movie does. And I get okay, maybe there's Sonic some musical know history. How to get down? I, don't know. I he could, but we don't need to see it. I mean, sure, Sonic uh, Underground existed as a cartoon, and he could rock a guitar, I guess, but like. It still felt weird to me in this movie, and and I realize it may sound silly to nitpick a kids movie for being a kids movie, but I don't know. Like the the one thing I do want to point out is that in its opening weekend, nearly half of the audience that saw the movie, forty six percent, was between eighteen and thirty four years old. Now, obviously, that's the core. Still got a ninety eight. What? Still got a ninety eight from the audience. Oh yeah, 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 and obviously, you know, that forty six percent are the core fans who grew up with Sonic, so they wanted to see it asap. But that 46% represents nearly 33 million of the opening weekend performance. Like, that's a lot of dollars riding on an older audience. So there's a part of me that's just like, well, hey, if some other kids' movies, Pixar movies, Detective Pikachu again, whatever, cannot have dance numbers, maybe Sonic doesn't need one either. Or maybe I'm just a dance number Grinch. I don't know, but that scene really kind of... The wedding scene to you was the dance number scene to me, essentially. Huh. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but what's interesting, though, is that 46% of people, um, you know, 18 to 34, uh, the largest group within that group were not parents. They were just adults going on their own free will. Like, the par- the parental, like, turnout was, like, 21% or something, and then the other half was um, just fans. So, well, interesting thing. Also interesting, uh, the Latino demographic was the biggest to see the movie. Make of that what you will. I didn't realize it would break down sort of like that, but yeah, interesting little tidbit. Um, Latinos love two things: Morrissey yes. and Sonic. <laughs> is is that is Sonic more? Was Genesis more of a thing in like the Latino community than like the Super Nintendo was? I actually don't know. I was just joking. No, I know, but now I'm actually thinking about it. Like, is there is it what? Because it, that would explain a lot. If like you know, culturally, everyone came up with Sonic, then of course they go, "I go see Sonic," but. Um, but if we do want to dip into a little more spoiler, Kevin, do you mind if we mention a mid-credit scene? Do you care? Yeah, I know what you're talking about already. So okay, so anyone else listening, um, I feel like we gotta dip into this for a sec. Uh, we'll only touch on this for a moment or two. So if folks out there need to skip ahead, go for it. We'll wait a beat before we get into it. Okay, they probably hit skip. Um, so what do you guys think of them introducing Shadow as the stinger for the third movie already? Oh, about time, I guess. Uh, didn't Interesting. You think it took him too long? No, it just 
Uh, no thoughts, honestly. No, that's fair. Um, like, like it just felt like, like, oh, cool, they're just going in this direction. It was, it didn't feel like it was like, whoa, they're doing this already, or like, oh man, like they should have done this already. It just felt natural, especially with, you know, the movie already introducing Gun, even throwing right. in SA two on there, like, yeah, oh well, one of the helicopters, you know, probably coincidence or just intentional, but I'm like, sure it, it's it, a nod. It, it already felt like we're already going in Sonic Adventure 2 land. Just have it, Crush 40 in the sequel, and we're good. I feel like it's interesting to me because they had the, the nods to Sonic Adventure 2, yeah, but it felt like... Like, when they showed that to me, it felt like such a big skip ahead because they're paralleling the games pretty decently. Like, Sonic 1 was relatively tame, much like the first game was pretty basic. Sonic 2 here, you know, they brought an element from Sonic 2 the game, obviously, the plane, the giant robot. Uh, but they also kind of pulled a little beyond that, right? We got, like, Knuckles, who... Where, outside um, the Mushroom, Knuckles, I mean, Mushroom Planet is literally from Sonic 3, and that was there from the beginning, so it's almost like... Well, it was there from the beginning as a tie-in for Sonic 2. I mean, Sonic also being... I wouldn't say it was fully... The city is Sonic Adventure to even start with, because... Yeah, know, Sonic I 1, guess. 2, and 3 was never even on Earth. <laughs> True. I, I, okay, that's fair. I guess, I, I guess what I was getting at is it felt to me like, you know, Sonic 3 and Sonic 2 were this movie, so naturally the next thing they do is Metal Sonic, introduce Amy, you know, stuff like that, and yet... That could very well be in the next one. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they need a villain for for everyone in Shadow to team up against, which I'm still... I guess I'm just going to assume it's probably going to follow more Sonic Adventure 2 with everybody except Rouge. Pretty sure you're just going to have... Big the Cat? Is Big the Cat going to make a comeback, even though he was in one or two? I I feel you're just going to get, like, Shadow and Amy as new characters and just, like, the ultimate life from as the villain or something. They... It is... you don't think Shadow's gonna be, or you think Shadow's gonna basically be another Knuckles, like start it's, back? It's gonna be good. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is gonna be interesting whole, how they're gonna throw in the whole Maria thing. They're gonna end it with Crush Forty. It'll be pretty. cool. Oh God, bringing hope Maria. In? They're not gonna bring. I hope that. Well, that raises a good question, right? So every Sonic I mean, that's that like they reference, half of Shadow's dialogue is only ever about Maria. Every Sonic they reference up to this point you know, one, two, three, has been relatively, like, safe, kid-friendly, however you want to frame it. Um, but when you get into, like, the Sonic Adventures and beyond, like, how do they handle, in such a similar kid-friendly tone, the actual concept of a paramilitary force hunting these guys down? Or, like, like this is where the series started to get, like, kind of real and edgy in Sega's mind. Like, Sonic kissing humans, Shadow-wielding a handgun. Like, they're getting, they're kind of bugging up against that. Like, I'm curious how they address that, because the, the Well, they're not going to give movies, Shadow a gun. <laughs> Just so I, you know, probably not. not give but, Shadow a gun. but I mean, I mean more broadly, like even like the idea of what gun is and this like kind of paramilitary outside the government for like we're going kind of Transformers here, which is fine. But Sonic started a lot tamer than like the Transformers movies did in tone. You know, what? So I'm Rouge curious if they're going to kind of age up the, the series now. I wonder if Rouge might even just appear in the Knuckles TV show. Pretty sure Knuckles the show is just going to be him collecting the Chaos Emeralds. Since you know, most likely, it most they didn't even acknowledge them. Yeah. They're just like. They just no, they did. They, they made, like, a reference. They're like, there's these things, and they caused this other Master Emerald to appear. And, and yeah, here's the Master Emerald. No, so, like, they left it. no, no, Jason. Like, after... Well, I guess it's another spoiler. Like, you know, at the very end, after Sonic uses them, they go into a sky beam, and they just... Well, we know they disperse, but, you know, they're like, oh, you look Oh, that's what you meant. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like, I mean, typically in the Sonic world, like, you know, when they... When that happens, they literally, like, shoot off in different directions of the world. Kind of like Dragon Balls after you make a wish. Which is funny because, you know, Super Saiyans and whatnot. 
Yeah, but, there's some parallels there. Yeah, so you know that that also makes it perfect for like an episodic show, which I'm sure is what Knuckles is gonna do, just going after yeah. the emeralds, and he would obviously need like a foil, which you know you have rival treasure hunter Rouge. But I for some reason, that direction. I for some reason thought that they implied that Knuckles already once collected them all, and they went back to the Master Emerald and then dispersed again. So it could be either a prequel or a sequel, in that regard. I could have sworn they made a reference to that. Maybe I misremembered. Like in the movie. Yeah, I could have sworn they're like, well, oh, I mean, the, there's he, these I mean, seven grabbed, chaos emeralds, and he he collected I mean, he them. Grabbed, now there's the master, and then now they're dispersed again. I mean, he grabs the shards and just makes a new master emerald that just doesn't have them in there. Because that's right, kind of how it is in the game. Up. Like they're the master emerald ends up just being its own thing. Right, right. Well, yeah, it does set up, and they're saying that it's gonna be a Sonic Cinematic Universe now, apparently. So that does set up the show quite nicely. Yes. Um, and to that point, I feel like we'd be, that's uh, probably it for spoilers, but I feel like we'd be remiss to not touch on, um, not just how the movie is, which we've been talking about, but also box office. Like how it did, because Sonic's kinda really killing it, actually. Like, did you know it's the single biggest domestic opening for a Jim Carrey movie ever? Like, does Jim Carrey now? What? Does Jim Carrey now? I assume someone texted him. Or called, or left a voicemail, or a carrier pigeon. You would hope he's... Yeah, I would hope he's aware. I, I'm gonna be honest. I never quite understood Jim Carrey's full appeal. Like the dude's clearly talented and can crank up the zany to like not just eleven, but I don't know, multiple multitudes of eleven. But I don't know. Like even as a kid, it always felt like too much for me like he's so wacky and the scenarios he puts himself really? in are so his ridiculous. type of humor always felt to me like exactly like it literally defines jason rachman well thanks for listening oh wait my full name's on the website never mind i was like thanks for saying my full name on the record no um really <laughs> i feel like you're not serious but yeah i don't know like it it's it, because like he set the tone for all of like 90s comedy right for a while there and like so much of it stemmed from like his specific brand of humor and it just never clicked with me i don't know i mean were you were you guys big jim carrey fans as kids i know this is kind of a tangent but i'd say so but yeah mm. well, you can yeah i mean like i'm a fan of some of his movies but a huge all of them yeah yeah i watched all of them yeah i love the mask i honestly i think i was actually oh like indifferent about ace ventura i think i maybe enjoyed it more than disliked it i thought recently a few years ago, Ace Ventura 2 specifically. And some parts were funny, but it was like, wow, this movie... I don't know. I think Nostalgia was doing more work than not. But mm-hmm. I definitely like more of his roles than not. And honestly, like... I think, yeah, I think... and you know, I know a lot of people are kind of the same boat, but still, like, one of my favorite of his roles is just Truman Show, which is mm, I guess yeah, not that normal... Not that regular zany Jim Carrey. But I do like that yeah. Jim Carrey. I don't yeah. know. And I, I should clarify, yeah, his stuff where he sort of steps back from the zany. He also had a show on Showtime that was um, supposed to be really good. Um, he played like a late night talk show host who had like some serious like um, some sort of major. I don't remember what was going on with him, but something serious outside the late night shows. So There's like this like dichotomy or duality of like him being this like super happy go lucky late night host, and then right after just kind of shutting down and being this super serious sad dude. Um, that was supposed to be very good. But yeah, his zany side, I don't know. Not really quick. But anyway, um, 
Back to Mara at hand with Sonic here. Um, I was going to say that Sonic 2 had the single biggest opening for video game movie adaptation of all time at $71 million, uh, which is also one of the biggest pandemic movie openings to date. So clearly the uh, movie's doing well. But what's kind of interesting is that it came on the heels of another game movie, Uncharted, also doing well. In fact, that one exceeded expectations as well. Um, just in its opening, I think Uncharted, it made... Um, I think 50 million, 51 million over the President's Weekend, like four-day President's Day weekend, um, against a projection. I think it's supposed to be somewhere in the mid-30 million range. And it's since gone on, and I started pulling all these numbers, it's, it has since gone on to make $389 million, Uncharted. Uh, for, some car, for some context there, Uncharted's gross thus far is more than what Box Office Mojo lists as the entirety of the first Sonic movie's total gross, which is $319 million. And Uncharted is now closing in very quickly on Detective Pikachu's total gross, which is $433 million. And if you go even slightly further back, uh, it's also closing in on Rampage that topped out at $428 million. And if you want to look at, like, video game adjacent movies, uh, Free Guy, that made over $330 million, and Uncharted's already surpassed that. So... For me, it seems like we're sort of at a tipping point here between Uncharted and Sonic. Um, with just, like, video game movies in general. Like, when Sonic 1 and Detective Pikachu came out, the conversation really seemed to center around the idea of, like, you know, what that video game movies could finally be good. Like, not every video game movie has to be bad, and in the time since, you know, we, we saw Mortal Kombat. That came out. It did okay. Uh, but I remember you two talked about it on a random Nintendo and thought it was fun. And the Mario movie obviously was announced, too. Um, but it feels like now... The way these are ramping up, the announcements that are coming in town with them, it feels like the floodgates are kind of opening with video game movies. And I think the question is kind of like, why now? Like, what what switch? Do you guys have any theories? I have one, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Um, just the direction the market's going as far as reboots. Yeah, that's fair. We're in the '90s. '90s were video gamey. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Okay. My my theory is kind of similar to that. Um, Kevin, did you have a theory, or should I just launch into my wacky theory? Uh, I don't know. Maybe people are actually trying to make good movies out of video game adaptations just because of the stigma surrounding them. I I honestly don't know. I I think everything combines into one answer. Yeah, I think I don't think that's wrong either. So so here's my theory. Bear with me. It takes a weird path that starts at Saturday Night Live. So, so I've been watching Saturday Night Live, uh, on and off, mostly on, since like 2002 or 2003. And I know, Kevin, you question every day while I, why I do that. Um, but in the past few years, in particular the last season or two, there's been a huge uptick in the amount of video game and specifically Nintendo references. Like this season alone, um, there's some Nintendo punchliners storyline or skip plot point or I, I don't know whatever you want to call it like literally every two or three episodes there's a nintendo thing and it wasn't unheard of before you know like in the peak of the wii frenzy there's a wii joke and other late night shows like jimmy found where occasionally highlight an upcoming game for a segment or something but those were few and far and tw- far between and now it kind of feels like it's like deeply woven into the show itself all these video game references and that got me thinking even before the movies blew up um you know as it kept occurring Throughout the season, it's because what SNL or any comedy show or any industry or movie industry does, you know, uh, any pop culture thing really, is it relies on the things we have a shared background in, right? Like the things we're familiar with as a whole culture. 
So for a show like SNL, that means the bulk of the humor has to be relatable to the entire audience, the younger crowd and the older crowd. So for gaming to now be so dominant, it theoretically means that all of us who played Super Nintendos and N64s and PS1s and Genesis's, uh, we had to age up to where we are today because now we're the age group for the age business up. decision. Yeah, we're the, but yeah, we age into the age group where we are the business decision makers, the content creators, the executives, the gamers, people who played these games are the ones running the pop culture show now, generationally, generationally speaking. Um, of course, before us, there were certainly people who played earlier games, right? Like, I'm not denying that the 8 bit era didn't exist, but those games were very simple in premise, bare bones in execution. So if you wanted to flush those out, it was a little more difficult, and yes, you had the younger half of your audience who were familiar with them, but there was this older half at the time who were less familiar with them. So you had to kind of normalize them or like Hollywoodify them or do something to make it where it's like it's not just this 8-bit series of blocks. These people don't understand that. They have a movie story in here too, we promise you. Um, but if you think about like the demographic spread today, the majority of people really like the zeitgeist that we're all in, that the people that power that zeitgeist. You know, they now have this shared experience and background with video games. So they are the ones consuming and creating and doing right by the games as a result because they know what the games are and they know everyone else does too. Like, it's very similar to me to kind of what happened with comic book movies. Like, there's this age demographic, initially younger, who is super into them. Occasionally, the olds who didn't get why people were into them, may try to make adaptations or tap into specific, specific audience. Is or that an actual term? The olds? Well, it is for me now because I said it. Uh, but I, yeah, the older people, I don't know what you want to call them. But, you know, they try and tap into that and eh, the movies would be okay. But because they didn't, like, get the heroes, they didn't get why people liked it. Like, those adaptations, they didn't really capture the right spirit or vibe of the IP. You know, look at, like, some early 2000s superhero movies or even if you go further back, you know, something like Catwoman jumps out at me as an example. Daredevil jumps out at me as an example, the, the first movie. And, you know, that younger audience, when it first started, that these movies were trying to cater to, it seems small and niche. But over time, you realize, like, hey, there's a lot of us with the sa that same experience in our past. I mean, reading comics, flying cartoons of various superheroes, whatever, like, a lot of people did that. And that audience grew into becoming a dominant part of the market, again, both as consumers and those who shape the content. I mean, think about someone like uh, Kevin Feige of the MCU, you know, you know, the producer of all the Marvel movies. He was born in the 70s. His childhood was probably full of stuff from, like, the Silver Age of Marvel, and that shaped this passion for him that then spawned the MCU. And every person that came after him, they've experienced something similar to some degree. Like, the once the doors kind of open, more and more people are experiencing whatever it is. And everyone before that, the people who aren't as familiar, that, that's a shrinking audience. They, frankly, are dying off eventually. So, you know, as we kind of, like, grow into being the dominant age group of a certain thing, it's how we went from subpar occasional superhero movies to Marvel and DC being the tent poles of Hollywood. Like, it, or how we're, like, cosplay, you know, that went from a niche thing to something even our parents understand the meaning of, at least mine do, because the bulk of society now knows what cosplay is and conveys it, and then kind of the older generation's like, oh, I guess that's what cosplay is, just because so much of the majority get it and appreciate it or understand it and i think now it's video games turn to have that same sort of cultural takeover across mediums like the box office totals point to it um and unsurprisingly new game movie adaptations are being announced like crazy in the immediate aftermath of sonic 2 
Um, so I really think like we're at that point. Like this is gaming comic book movie moment. Somehow, at long last, well, not somehow. I just explained how I think, but at long last, we have reached it. Um, and of note, there have been just since Sonic's release three separate announcements for different game movies, all in the last like ten days. Um, so just to run through them real quick, one is the long just staying Minecraft movie. Uh, it might finally be getting some traction. Warner Bros. is apparently very close to signing Jason Momoa as the lead in a live-action adaptation, which will be directed by John Hess of Napoleon Dynamite, of all things, which is definitely a mad lip of a sentence I just said. Um, no word on, like, what Momoa is doing in it or what even the premise will be, like, who he's going to be or what the premise will be, but it's the first real movement since, I think, uh, I think it's Rob McElhenney, or however you say it, from It's Always Sunny. Rob McElhenney? Thank you. From uh, It's Always I can never say his last name. But yeah, he, of Always Sunny and Mythic Quest fame, was originally going to direct it and write it. Um, and that kind of fell to the wayside. As was Sean Levy at one point, who went on to do Free Guy instead. So, Minecraft's been kind of circling for a while. Or they've been circling Minecraft, but it seems like now with this like kind of momentum, they're actually getting very close to signing a big star and getting the ball rolling. So that was one announcement. Then came word from Amazon um, that they had picked up the movie adaptation rights to It Takes Two with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, exec producing and potentially starring. Um, apparently, a company called DJ2 Entertainment is the main company developing it, who, um, not so coincidentally, uh, had a hand in the Sonic movies and are also working on a slew of game-to-TV show adaptations as well, including Disco Elysium, Life is Strange, My Friend Pedro, and apparently Tomb Raider. Which, by the way, is a whole other aspect of this culture takeover we didn't even touch on, which is Halo and other like video game TV shows are now becoming flagships for various streaming services as well. You know, Paramount Plus obviously has Halo, Netflix has all the animated ones and live action ones, and like it's it's it's, it's a full culture takeover. Um, and it was also announced that DJ Two Entertainment is teaming back up with Sega to do a video game adaptation of Streets of Rage that will be written by uh, a guy named Derek Kolstad, who is the writer of the John Wick movie. So a lot of movement around game movies in just, you know, in just the last few weeks. Like, clearly video games are entering that kind of comic book movie moment. Do any of those projects sound interesting to you guys at any level? I guess just it takes two, but that's only because I've been playing it. But otherwise, not really. Does, I mean, so does, kind, do of in the, kind, of, kind of in the same vein as, like, when they first announced the Angry Birds movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, oh, I'm not really... In that much into that's again like the closest one maybe Minecraft, but I mean Minecraft I just like playing it with my brother. Otherwise, I don't really care much for it. Minecraft is the biggest head scratcher to me. Like not because it's not ripe for ideas. Like there's so many ideas and ways it can go. I just like the live action aspect is the weirdest. Like why move away from the iconic look? Like can you imagine if the Lego movie wasn't didn't look like it was made of Lego blocks? Like I don't really get what how well, they do Minecraft live action. Who's to say it's not going to be a Jumanji where Jason Momoa gets sucked into a Minecraft world and then it's that's just, true. That's true. They could very well do that. Could very well do that. Do you, does it takes two adapt well to a movie? You think? Because you're saying that's one that is maybe of most interest. Like is it story driven enough? I guess it doesn't need to be, but it's all well, yeah, it's all story driven. It's just a couple trying to like work through their divorce for their daughter that's just marriage counseling with a kid-friendly twist fair enough yeah kevin hey are you dying to see any of these movies <laughs> no not necessarily yeah it's 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 i think i think what i'm intrigued by is streets of rage 
not because I necessarily care about Streets of Rage. Um, but well, one, the John Wick writer helps, but um, it's like the one IP out of everything we just mentioned that actually kind of is a retro adaptation, like the video game equivalent of I don't know when they rebooted Transformers or GI Joe or all those '80s properties that basically turned into entirely new things because of these movies. Like I'm curious, I'm curious what the plan is for Streets of Rage and whether that then spins into something more modern and if that leads to more games. Like it kind of seems like the next step in this whole like groundswell of gaming movies is to kind of do that style reboot. So it'll be interesting to see what it turns into. Especially since Sega in general, from what I've been reading, seems to very much be on a retro kick of late, where they're trying to revive old IPs in new ways. Like, they had this plan they previously announced to make something they're calling Super Game, which is a horrible name. And I don't know if Streets of Rage applies to this, there's going to be one of them or what, but there's a report in Bloomberg the other day that Sega's basically trying to the idea is basically that Sega wants to take legacy franchises and turn them into games of services. Like, specifically, they're trying to create, like, long-lasting, money-generating, big-budget takes on classic games that Bloomberg is saying are following in the footsteps of how, like, Fortnite blew up as an IP. Which, on paper, that sounds kind of bled. It's almost concerning. Like, is it going to be, like, a cash grab? But... Then the report cited Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio as both being examples of the plan. Uh, Crazy Taxi has apparently been in development for two or three years already. And uh, I'm kind of into it, I think. Like, I do think that both are kind of ripe for some sort of major multiplayer online experience. Like Crazy Taxi, the idea practically writes itself instead of just one cabbie in a small city. Why not have a whole bunch of players all racing around at high speeds competing for fares against one another? Like, you can literally take the exact Crazy Taxi gameplay as is, just expand it to multiplayer. And I guess Jet Set falls under the same thing. I imagine it would be similar. You just swap out taxi driving and customers for roller skating and graffiti tagging and just have it be a big open city. Um, whether or not that's the idea they're going to do. Are you guys into the idea of Crazy Taxi and Jet Set coming back? Like, would them as games of services turn out good? Does just saying or games of service immediately scare you off to a reboot? I mean, I recently played Crazy Taxi, and I just loved how simple it was just to pick up and play. And I'm kind of afraid that any modern game is just going to overcomplicate that. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I just like that there wasn't much to it. Like, it's just accelerate, reverse. There's You could kind of finagle them to do a little boost. Just just drops you into the map. The GameCube one offers you a second map. I'd rather just say release. Just give me a way to play the first one on the Switch. And then do whatever you want, honestly. I, I, I guess in that case, you could say a new one doesn't interest me. I just want an easy way to play the first one. Because I'm not really starving for a new Crazy Taxi. I'm just starving for Crazy Taxi. The original. Yeah. I, I think that could be in concept as simple as what you're describing. I think we're going to get tied, bogged down as monetization schemes. But, but first, Kevin, is there? were you big on Crazy Taxi or Jet Set at any point? No. Uh, Jet Set, yes. Jet Set, yes. I, I love Jet Set. So, but hold on. Is this report saying that they want these games as a, live, as a live service game? Yep. Like individually? Yep. Or as an entire thing? Nope. Separate games. Okay. Separate live services, yep. Which... Uh, regardless, like, Jet Set Radio as a live service, I could see pretty cool, you know, get a, get a new stage here or there, get some new... uh get some new characters in. So that sounds cool. Crazy Taxi, I don't know how you turn that into a live service game. 
I re- I really do think it's just a matter of like, and that, and that's the thing. Is I think they could keep the simplicity. We'll see, but kind of like what I was saying, where if you just take the very simple gameplay of you're all driving around like crazy and you just have you competing against other people for the same customers, like it's just a giant. Like think of it like an open city in like GTA or something, um, but just zany and like you're kind of racing around trying to get to a customer for someone else. It could work. The thing I don't really get, and they could add new cities, and they could add new like suburbs, and they could add new. Uh, crazy car abilities, but the thing that I keep being like, oh, and this is true for Jet Set as well, is like I said before, I think monetization is going to be what holds this up because like Sega has begun a weird pattern of trying to squeeze extra money out of their most core fans, which always just feels extra like cringe. Like if you look at how they did a release like Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania, uh, there's some DLC included in one price tier, a physical release at a higher price didn't include the DLC. There are other bundles that like mixed and matched the DLC. You can buy like individual like characters and songs and stuff for like multiple dollars. Like it just think it seems like they could easily nickel and dime these games to the point that they kill any potential in them. And they're already kind of further going down that path. Not quite as extreme as a game of service, but um the various versions of Sonic Origins they just announced also are kind of a weird money grab. And and actually, we, we should back up. Um, Sonic Origins was announced. Like, that's a new thing. Um, so for anyone who missed that, this is a new compilation of Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, and Sonic CD, all four of which will be playable in their original format and aspect ratio or in a new... Like the anim- ninth time that they do this. Except Sonic CD hasn't actually been out uh, available on a modern system since 2011. So it's been 11 years since Sonic CD. 1, 2, 3, I agree, they milk them to death. But CD, that that one stands out. But yeah, they're, like in the past, they're the original retro, but now they have this new anniversary mode that offers full widescreen, it gives you infinite lives with zero game overs, and you can control Tails and Knuckles in all four games. And there's going to be, um, like, missions and achievements that you can do as you go through games, like little side things to unlock art and various collectibles. And it's all strung together with some new cinematics, animated cinematics that look very Sonic Mania in style and are probably from the same team, from what I could tell. Um, so yeah, it is kind of the millionth time they've done this, but they're at least trying to make it a little different. And I think uh, it is clever that they're releasing it in June on the 23rd, which is probably right when the Sonic movie will get its home release. And even if it's not quite day and date, like it's a, it is a clever way for Sega to like make a tie-in game of sorts since well, so much of the movie is based on Sonic 2 and 3. So if they re-release Sonic 2 and 3 and make them accessible to those who haven't played them before, like younger kids, especially with the no game over thing, that's kind of a clever way to sort of ride the coattails of the movie based on the game without doing a game based on a movie based on a game. So I'll give them that. But, 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 then there's the process of actually deciding how to buy it. And that's the kind of nickel and dime thing. I know, Angel, the, the other day we were talking, you like, you're perplexed by the whole thing, right? Just perplexed, but I mean, upon like further retrospective, I'm like, okay, it's actually not that bad. I think I. But that's the problem. You shouldn't have to. Re- you shouldn't have to think about it. I mean, they they put out a feature chart, like a, a chart of what every version has. Is 45 individual table cells on the chart. Like, there's no reason to have to give this so much thought because the fact that you had one impression and had to think about it again. Go, something that ended up that ends up only being five dollars more for the highest tier. As soon as I yeah, I, and that's what's so. I didn't even look at the so... price initially, and then when I saw that it was just like a five dollar difference between the cheapest and the most expensive. It did make it more personal. Like, why did they have to put out this chart? Like, it almost makes it feel like I would like they want me to fork over more, but it's like, oh, it's just five bucks. And a lot of the stuff is also like incredibly inconsequential. Like, you know, it's it like is, animations but... in the front main menu or moving the camera in the music menu. 
like yeah okay. so let, let's let's that's real quick the, break down what it is I mean, um, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that i'm like yeah i don't mind paying a little extra for that or i feel like i wouldn't be missing out so here's but. here's where i have a hold up with it besides the fact that's unnecessarily confusing um so the standard edition i'm gonna break it all down for folks who haven't seen this stupid chart the standard edition comes with the core game and some lockables um the digital deluxe adds the animations you mentioned both on uh the main menu character animation uh camera control so you can swing around the main menus like island uh character animations during music islands which i imagine is a music player mode um but also you get additional music from other genesis games beyond the four included um that's what's in deluxe simple enough so far right you get a bunch more if you go deluxe for five more dollars as you point out but let's make it a little confusing if you pre-order either version today standard or deluxe uh, you'll also gain access to the free Start Dash Pack, which gives you 100 bonus coins to spend on in-game knickknacks, an unlocked mirror mode from the start, and a special letterbox background. And I don't know if that... I assume the letterbox background is referring if you play in the classic ratio, what fills the left and right screen, but I frankly have no idea. Let's assume that's what it is. Now, let's say you don't pre-order and you want some of those extra pre-order features later. Well, you can at a future date buy the Premium Fun Pack, which will augment your standard game with the deluxe version's bonus hard missions, the same pre-order incentive as of a special um, layer box background, and all the character animation stuff. However, what if you don't pre-order the deluxe edition and still want the layer box background from the fun pack? Because the deluxe doesn't standard come with the layer box background. So what if you buy it like I don't know a month after release? Well, if you want your layer box background, and I don't know who's gonna pay extra for it, but if you want it, you have to buy the standard. Uh, fun pack or whatever it's called premium fun pack excuse me you have to buy the premium fun pack anyway the background won't be available to you in the deluxe edition as it stands neither for that matter will the unlock mirror mode that comes as a pre-order bonus from the start dash pack in fact all deluxe will be augmented with beyond release is a separate fourth download the classic music pack otherwise if you buy the standard edition and the premium fun pack you still need to pay a third price to get the classic music pack and if you had any trouble following any of that, therein lies the problem. It's not so much how they're nickel and diming. It's the concern I have with Sega doing any game of service and having it just be confusing and have unnecessary charges and have weird things that you can't get everything you want without having to double buy something. Like there's multiple almost conflicting skews in a single re-release of four old Sonic games. And there's not even a physical option. These are all digital. They want you to literally, if you need to, keep downloading different variations of the same thing just to get everything if you want everything. And it's very complicated. So, like, that, it's such a monkey's, a monkey's paw for, like, wanting a new crazy taxi. <laughs> this whole yeah. thing. Just, it's not like it's, Mania. They're yeah. eventually going to have a physical release because that one was also I'm digital sure. only in the beginning. Yeah, and that will probably include everything. But then that's dip number five, right? Because then if you're a fan and you try and get everything and they're like, oh, but I want on my shelf. You're rebuying everything again. Like, it's such a... Ah, it's just so ridiculous. I get what they're doing, and I get a letterbox background isn't going to make or break it for some people, but if you are a diehard Sonic fan, like the chorus of the core, the guy who goes to Crush 4E concerts, the guy who, you know, if you Google image search your name, the hedgehog, is the one making that art. Like, if you're one of those guys, they're kind of taking advantage of you because they know you'll do all these different configurations and keep rebuying the same re-releases of games from the 90s. I don't know. It just feels kind of skeezy. But anyway, that's my spiel on that. And actually, I think that's it for the Sonic movie and movies in general, unless you guys have anything else you want to say. I think I'm ready to move on. 
Okay. Let's switch your, then let's switch gears to another type of adaptation then. Um, Angel, you and I have both been playing a Switch indie called Terror Bane, which is very much a game adaptation, and that's mixing, remixing, and parodying a lot of other games. Um, and we should point out before we get into it that we both received a playable copy from the game's creators, and they actually gave us two extra codes as well, eShop download codes. So we'll explain how you can win those out there to the listener, you know, like all you listeners out there. We'll explain that in a bit. Uh, but yeah, this is a very meta experience in that you're playing a game, in which you're playing a game, in which the developer and the in-game characters are both directly talking to you and relying on you to achieve their goals. So on the one hand, you have a developer who wants help finding all the bugs in the game, which is why the title is stylized as Terrorbane with ERROR in all caps. Uh, but on the other hand, the in-game citizens want your help trying to get their world back in order. Um, Angel, what'd you make of the game? I mean, right at the bat, I really, really love the presentation. Um, I think not intentionally not really knowing too much about the game itself, just knowing, you know, the title. And if you did give me a synopsis before, Jason, I completely forgot it. I did not. But, I sent you a link to uh, the eShop page, and that was it. But, yeah, just like, I don't know, just jumping in, like you said, like, you know, the devs talk to you. Like, I don't know, I, I like that whole dynamic and, you know, production value. Like, I don't know, it was, it was cool. I, I I like the, the we, I yeah, like, I don't even know, like, what kind of genre to call it, because it's, you know, there's clearly, like, some RPG, but there's also, like, heavy narrative focus that, like, even the whole, like, the whole beginning sequence, like, I thought was, like, really, really fun. And something that I feel like a lot of people actually get some enjoyment out of without spoiling mm-hmm. too much. But yeah, it's the, the meta-ness was really cool because I guess I haven't played too many games like that off the top of my head. I think um, what surprised me the most is a lot of the material for the game, which I did look at a little more in depth. Uh, I know you kind of went blind, but I looked and it was very, you know, described as inspired by JRPGs. And it's very, you know, so I was going in expecting like an old school RPG, which, you know, it is certainly inspired by them. Like, movement-wise, it's top-down. You have random encounters with enemies. Um, you can go to different environments and settings. But, yeah, I it, the genre's kind of hard to pin down. It's almost more of a light adventure game than anything else. Like, a narrative-driven, at times, almost... Like, I wouldn't call it a walking simulator, because there's a bit more you do. But, like, the idea that you're kind of just going place to place and then engaging with just, like, a button press. There's some of that for sure. And, and it does have some RPG, like, roots, kind of. Um, like, the battle system, you do select a move. But then you're not actually, like, doing an RPG battle. You're basically playing a WarioWare micro game. Like, it gives you a word or two to command, uh, a hint of a bu- uh, a word or two to command, a word or two of a command is probably actually a word of that. Uh, you know, then you, you're you given a button to hit, and then it's up to you to execute. And you may need to, like, line up the menu box. Like, it's a slot machine rotation. Like, the like literally, the dialog box, like, split, and you have to, like, realign it. Or there's, like, you drop your character in, like, a puzzle game style drop of pieces or you have to deflect certain things in a sequence and if you do all that like cool you instantly win the battle and if you fail at that well you lose the battle instantly um so i, I don't know how you if i don't know about you angel but what i found fun about the game wasn't so much you know necessarily the like kind of rpg structure which is really just foundation but just how they do this randomization of expectations as a whole like the way the battle system throws things at you that's basically the structure of the entire game. Like, as you encounter bugs in the world, they'll just do stuff you don't expect. Like, one um, I thought was kind of clever is you gain an item who's actually an NPC named George, and you can apply him on glitch textures to essentially manipulate the world to your advantage. 
and even just as you go through that world, like what you'll experience, um, it's all different parodies of different games and different references. And it, it, which you get depends on what you decide at certain points. So like for me, my journey through the game took me from like a standard, almost Zelda style intro to those WarioWare battles, to like a Five Night at Freddy's kind of haunted house deal with like checking cameras to a straight up like Yu-Gi-Oh card battle spoof by way of like a Pokemon battle fake out. I mean, did you, what parodies did you encounter along the way, Angel? Did you have different ones? Surprisingly, the same ones. Oh, really? Because I do know there's uh, a Mario one. There's a first-person dungeon crawler. We played um, the same way. Wow. We apparently did. But yeah, um, I'd be curious to like see like how the Mario one works and stuff, which does... I might go back, considering it's not that long. So. Yeah, and not only that, but one thing the developers do that's kind of cool is you don't have to replay the whole thing, because they want you to be able to go find all these parodies without necessarily... like grinding through it um when you beat the game the first time which i don't know how long it took you you it took me about two hours was that about the same for you yeah maybe a little less yeah uh but once you do that you gain access to a menu option called warp zone and written of course in mario font colors and uh that lets you jump to various decision points and just pick up for there from there and and then if you're a completionist each riff like each path each option you can change has its own pseudo bugs to discover with like a checklist and it's a really easy way to keep track of like 100% the game making sure you experienced all the parodies so like they, there's a good system there to kind of go back and figure things out um but I will say I'm curious if you felt the same way Angel as much as I did appreciate the meta-ness of it all I do think to a degree the sort of sliced up segments and mixing and matching of them also kind of hurt the pacing of the game a little like it's going zero to sixty right from the start, basically, which which works and is great, but it doesn't necessarily give enough time for the story beats to fully develop or some of the gameplay tasks. Even like, like I thought I had to do one thing to progress based on like what NPCs told me, and I like went to a casino, and then they're like, "Hey, you need to like go find something to be brave or something." I'm like, all right, and then I go to a haunted house, and okay, that's five nights at Frey, but then suddenly like I do something else and like the in-game developer character who's sort of this overarching on the present force who you know interjects and can quote-unquote make changes to the game that you know that will just completely change everything like the initial idea of what I needed to do is just kind of drop and makes an experience that can sometimes almost be too chaotic or destroying for its own good if that makes sense like even within each bit it felt like some of them are rushing to go all out as quickly as it can which again you know, kind of just lends that scattered feel of the game as a whole because it doesn't really have time to, like, build up any one thing. I mean, did you kind of get that impression at all, or were you kind of cool with, like, the rapid fire? Yeah, I was kind of cool with the rapid fire. It just kind of felt I got that manic energy from the beginning. Like, I didn't... Mm -hmm. it, it felt on brand, but, you know, it was also just... I felt about it as I was playing it. And it's not, to be fair, it's not like that means it's a problem. Like, the best analogy I could think of um, for Terrabane is, like, it's sort of like an episode of Robot Chicken, right, on Adult Swim, uh, compared to, like, if you compare Robot Chicken to, like, a more traditional sitcom. So, like, in video games, uh, maybe a good comparison would be uh, There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension, which we talked about a year ago here on the show, almost to the day, which is really weird. I think it was end of April when I talked about it last year. But that game has a similar kind of meta-ness, uh, but it's a little more structure, and that's a linear point-and-click puzzle game with kind of a stay escalation of the stakes. And as a result, you know, some aspects of There Is No Game do feel a little, to me, a little stronger uh, of a concept for ter than Terrabane. But that said, Robot Chicken's very entertaining. The randomness and bite-side gag 
are fun and they work and they kind of fit in that world. So the show, you know, the show's been around forever for a reason. And I feel like Terrabane has a great variety of references and jokes that probably exceeds what you're going to see in There Is No Game in terms of what it's referencing, what it's parodying, um, the pacing. Like, you're going to get a lot more jokes a lot quicker. And you, it, you, you just need to be willing to go along for that ride. And if you do go along for that ride, you'll, at the very least, crack a smile multiple times. Like, it is an entertaining experience, for sure. It just does have, like you said, kind of a manic energy to it. Um, But we do want to help facilitate this month. Like, we're like Nintendo. Uh, Why put smiles on people's faces? So, Angel, unless you have any other thoughts on Terror Bay, um, we could tell people how they can win a copy. Oh. I guess that yeah. means you do not have thoughts. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, so... I don't know how to win. Yeah, so we are providing an extra pair of eShop codes for Terabane by the good folks at Bitnine Studios and Vicarious PR. So if you like what you hear about the game and its manic energy, which is quite entertaining, uh, well, one, you can find it on the eShop for 16 bucks. But if you want to perhaps have it for free, I strongly recommend making your way to our Twitter at RamNintendo. Um, at some point in the coming week here, we'll be tweeting out a special contest tweet. All you need to do is retweet it and make sure you're following our account. Two lucky retweeters will be selected at random and get to get their... Um, I guess glitch on with Terrabane themselves uh, and of course a huge thanks to the game's team for making the giveaway possible so that's how you can win stay tuned to the Twitter for more Um, yeah but I did just evoke Nintendo themselves there with my silly smile comment I made so it seems like as good a time as any to actually talk about some Nintendo news we somehow went uh 57 minutes without once saying the name Nintendo, which is wild. I think we said Pikachu, but I don't think we really talked about anything Nintendo. And yet they too... Maybe, uh, maybe not. I don't think so. I, don't no, think I, I guess I said Mario. Mario. You're right. I said Mario. Yeah, I said the Mario movie wasn't it for about two Mario. seconds. Yeah, but yeah, they're now getting in on this whole word of the show thing with an adaptation of their own. There was a release date shuffle uh, this past week, seemingly it, to adapt to give Splatoon 3 a little more time in the oven. And what that amounts to is the very rare scooting up of an announced release period for a game by Nintendo. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is going from its original timing of September to now July 29th. And when it does arrive in July, it will have a special collector's edition you can order exclusively through the My Nintendo store. That will come with a steelbook case, a 250-page hardcover book, some extra box with some art, and it's for a price that is not yet announced and you cannot pre-order it yet. Um, But whether or not you care about Xenoblade, uh, well, first of all, is this going to get either of you to buy Xenoblade if it's like kind of free of the shackles of other fall releases? It is now, you know, dead of summer. No, because I didn't even finish the first Xenoblade. Not that they're related, like you know, they're kind of like the tail series, but I, I don't have enough interest in the Xenoblade series to bother with this one. Yeah, I've never been a big Xenoblade guy. Kevin, have you? I feel like we talked about this for Smash. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, the most interaction I've had with Xenoblade is playing as Shulk and Smash. So, yeah. But um, whether or not we care about Xenoblade, uh, I think having it break up what could have been back to back releases of Mario Strikers Battle League and Splatoon 3 actually makes a lot of sense for the Switch lineup. Um, I don't think it's why they did it, but if you were to assume that Splatoon was going to come before the September timeframe of Xenoblade, which. Yeah, I likely would have. You know, July kind of felt like what Nintendo was gunning for, maybe early August. But either way, uh, Mario Strikers is coming June 10th and is very heavily online with this Battle League. Splatoon 3 originally was probably going to be six to eight weeks later and also very heavy, 
uh, in online play. Like, in retrospect, it feels like it... Splatoon might have cut the knees off uh, the Mario Strikers community a little. Because, you know, if you're, you're... Obviously, the Switch is a big enough system to support multiple online experiences. But how many of the, like, early adopter diehard Nintendo fans would just up and abandon Mario Strikers the second Splatoon 3 hits? This at least ensures, because there's, like, a couple months runway now, like, elite, like three months runway, that Mario Strikers will have enough time to kind of build its own online community and player base before the Squid Kids show up and just kind of take away a chunk of it. So, kind of a silver lining of the situation, uh, but it does bring us to Splatoon 3's new date. On So on a Monday, Nintendo announced Xenoblade and gave it a few days of detailed information, and then they closed out the week this past Friday with word that Splatoon 3 will now be slotting into what was Xenoblade's September slot and has a confirmed date of 9-9. Which is a great show, by the way, Brooklyn Nine Nine. But anyway, uh, Splatoon, yeah, Splatoon Three is coming Nine Nine, and they put out a four-minute look at the updated version of its classic multiplayer mode, um, Turf War. And it was really just a look at Turf War. I mean, it was just a battle. It was just four minutes, not even edited, just four minutes of a Turf War battle. Um, you guys watch it, Angel? Did you? I'm at, I, Kevin. I'm guessing you probably didn't. Angel, I think you might have. Am I? Am I right? Do you have a good um, hunch? No, I actually did not. Really? That's surprising. Did you, Kevin? What if everything's topsy turvy? I mean, I didn't even—I didn't even know there was footage to watch. But if there was, I, you know, I, I, I was kind of just thinking, like, you know, I'm gonna kind of hear what Jason has to say because I kind of feel like there's no reason for me to watch this beyond. Yeah, you're not gonna like what I have to say. I don't think. Um, I said this about Salmon Run. I'm gonna say it again now about Tier Four. I don't think Splatoon 3 is doing a very good job of distinguishing itself from Splatoon 2. Like, it looks prettier. Oh, that argument. Never mind that. Well, well, yeah, well hold on. Good. Well, hold on. It does look prettier. There is a new weapon with this, like, crossbow thing. It has a new map that looks fun. But the whole thing just still, to me, feels like Splatoon 2.5. And before you say it, I know Splatoon 2 was actually more of a Splatoon 1.5 than a true sequel as well, because they were jumping it from Wii U to Switch. But, like, Splatoon 2 still had a big change in adding Salmon Run. And as it stands right now, all we're seeing with Splatoon 3 is kind of more of the same versus a new mode of Salmon Run caliber or even of multiplayer rotation caliber. Like, I feel like if they were there, like, if there was something that big, they would lead with their best shiny new foot forward, wouldn't they? Like, this feels odd that they're hyping up pre-orders, which are now available for Splatoon 3, with Turf War that looks very similar to Splatoon 2 if they have something more interesting in their back pocket that they're not sharing. And don't get me wrong, I'm still going to buy it. Because one, I'm a Nintendo sucker. Two, we have our game night group that started playing Splatoon together, and I'm sure we're all going to all play it. And I'm sure when we all play it, we'll appreciate every new quality of life improvement, every new map, all the new weapons. But for Nintendo, like, sequels usually feel a little more distinguished from past entries than this one does, as of now anyway. It's like, I don't know what that Turf War footage was trying to accomplish, I guess is my point. (laughs) Like, if you're in it for the nitty-gritty, like, oh, new weapons, how is showing the crossbow there any different than when they would just, you know, put it out as a free download in Splatoon 2? Like, what is it about Splatoon 3 that's going to make it be, it had to be a whole new game? That's what I'm waiting to see. I'm sure it's there. I just don't know why they're not leading with it. And because they're not leading with it, I'm less sure it's there. <laughs> kind of a weird circular argument. But yeah, it's it's 
it's strange. I don't really know what to make of it, but I'm still going to, of course, buy the game. But yeah, that's Angel. That's where I'm at on it. But the new weapon looks fun. The new map looks great. Yeah, um, I'll take it on the approach. Um, I guess a little while ago that, at least especially with Nintendo, where the less I know about something, the better. Honestly, if it's just like Splatoon 2 with just like a few tweaks here and there, like I'm perfectly fine. That's usually what I expect from some sequels. I mean, just look at Smash Brothers. I mean, yeah, they added a bunch of new characters. That was probably the only real difference. Otherwise, it's mechanically identical to Smash 4. But, yeah, like, I, well, <laughs> I, Smash, trust, I trust they'll, they'll be in there. I, yeah. The only counterpoint to Smash is, yeah, but there's only one per system. So you can make the argument that, yes, it's similar to what you played on that last Nintendo console, but now it's on this Nintendo console, which is exactly what they did Splatoon 1 to 2. It makes sense. I just don't know how they justify on I mean, the same system. That's, that's why. fine. Just give yeah. me some new maps, some new weapons, which we're obviously going to get both. They're obviously going to go a little nuts on the story because that's usually what they do. So Yeah, yeah. And if and speaking of, if you want nuts, you know, like if you want the story to be nutty, um, the Octo expansion DLC from Splatoon 2, like one piece of the Splatoon 3 announcement that did stand out was this unexpected... Surprised that Octo Expansion DLC is now included free of charge with Switch Online expansion pack. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, obviously it's a good way to, you know, get in the splatting spirit leading into Splatoon 3, but it's just another example of how Nintendo seems to really finally be ramping up Switch Online offerings. You know, it's a trend I, I think we talked about like two or three episodes ago, but literally in the past 10 days, the expansion pack game Mario Golf for N64. Shining Force 2, Space Harrier 2, and Sonic Spinball for Genesis. Another game trial this time about, of uh, Battle Quest. I'm just making up games. Dragon Quest Builders. And now, on top of all that, Octo Expand. So, yeah, there's a lot going on with Switch Online. But it is nice to see. If you want to whet your appetite for how wacky the game can get, yeah. Which I want to do. I've never actually played the Octo. So. Might be my choice. Let me tell you about that, that, uh, that Octo song? Expansion trailer. Do tell. Got probably one of the best songs in all of trailer history. That is a high bar you just set. And I'm that assuming that song is so good. It is. It is. I'm assuming there's no way in your mind that Nintendo's ever top that with a Splatoon three song. No, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, it's it. That is, is it, like peak peak video game music. I almost. I thought they're gonna do it with every Splatoon now and then. I go back to that trailer just to. I I have. Just to feel something, <laughs> just to but feel alive. Just to feel something, <laughs> I will pop in that uh, Octo expansion reveal trailer. Oh, that song! Oh, it's so good. I really thought, like, because Octo expansion, they're kind of like, oh, it leans a little more into hip hop, which is sort of why that song is so good because it has some integration there. But um, I really thought Splatoon three, they were gonna be like, okay, now we're doing this genre of music, like, oh, it's in like the Outlands or whatever. It'll be kind of like Western or something. You know, whistles and 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 that sort of thing. Twang. Nope. Seems like the music basically the same type of genre, which is interesting. I thought I would think when they hit like pinnacle music, they'd be like, "All right, let's switch genres," so we don't have to like try and replicate that. We could just say it's something different now. But no, they're they're sticking to it. So, but let me ask you this. Let me ask you guys this. Um, since they are still adding stuff to Switch Online, they keep adding stuff. I mean, we've had a lot in the last eight, ten weeks. Is the service worth it yet to you? Has it flipped to being a worthwhile purchase? The expansion pass or, or Ex- just... Expansion uh, pass, yeah. No. I got, 
because now you got four DLCs so. and like triple the game. I think I still feel like I'm paying it just because I'm a fan of Nintendo and not necessarily because I really want to. Hmm. That's but, fair. I mean, that's how I got my Mario Kart DLC, which I still play. So, got that. that helped. Yeah. I do think for me it's kind of past the tipping point now. Um, obviously, if you look at something like PlayStation Plus or, you know, Game Pass or whatever, um, there's a lot more games there. <laughs> and in the case of Game Pass, it's probably a better deal. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm past the point where I don't consider it. But like, Nintendo's did step up in a Nintendo y sort of way. Um, I think what really kind of pushed it over for me is Nintendo now has no problem retroactively adding previously released DLC. Like, if, if Octo's in there, what else is going to be there? How else are they going to hype up new releases with old things? Like, that that's a pretty big, like, Pandora's box there potentially open. I don't know why I said Pandora's box. That implies it's bad. But it's it's a big opportunity here. Like, they opened a door that I didn't think they'd open. So I'm curious where that goes. And there's also these supposed leaks from last week that uh, Switch Online... Apparently, the emulator for the Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games for Switch Online leaked, um, made by Nerd, which is Nintendo's uh, French like emulation team. And um, if it's legit, that's a whole nother wave of free content and a lot of it. And it's like a lot of cool stuff. Like the list of games they've been testing, it's like everything from like Pokemon Pinball to Drill Dozer to uh, Astro Boy Omega Force, which is a great slept on um, Game Boy Advance game. It supposedly might work with the transfer pack, so you can like take your stuff in your Game Boy Pokemon games or whatever on the emulator and use them on the N64 emulator. Like, it seems like kind of the next wave of big additions. So if that leak is real, that's just another thing they'll presumably pile on here to, to add value. So that that's potentially exciting. But even as is, I think I'm finally I think that okay is finally it. what would make me pull the trigger. That's what it'll take is Game Boy? Yep. I, I do get that to some degree, because Game Boy's the one thing they didn't keep reselling over and over. Like, the GBA games were only Ambassador games on the 3DS. So if you Dude, if I could get Minish that, Cap, oh my god. It's one, they tested it. It's one of the ones they tested. Yes! Yeah. Now, whether, again, whether this leak is actually, like, real remains to be seen, but it seems real. The thing people are getting held up on, or hung up on, is that um, they apparently were using an Easy Flash cart or something as part of the emulation testing, and Easy Flash is like a piracy thing. And everyone's like, well, why would Nintendo use a piracy tool to test their official games? So some are saying it might not be real. Some, I don't know. Could be an elaborate fake. Who knows? But nonetheless, um, something's brewing. There's no doubt it's going to arrive at some point. It's just a matter of when. So, but here's a follow-up question. Um, Angel, you do have Switch Online. I know, Kevin, you don't have Expansion Pack. But Angel, you do. Because you're a Nintendo fan, like you said. Do you actually go play these new games when they come out? Like, did you try any of the Genesis games or... Mario Golf or anything yet? I have yet to try the Genesis games at all. Or yeah, Mario I, Golf. I'll be Actually, honest. I don't. Um, maybe Banjo was the only one, and that's literally it. So you're kind of like me then. Like, we're not... <laughs> we're sitting here like, oh man, or at least I was up until now. Like, oh man, this isn't quite worth it, but I'm gonna still not utilize everything I'm paying for, and then say it's not worth it. Well, um, because it's not... It doesn't really... It's not... It's not really something I'm like. Yeah, yeah. They put a lot of games that I like really wanted to play, but I don't know. I guess it just doesn't have that much value to me. I mean, it's nice to have, but it's it's, it's literally just it's there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of same way. Like I don't often do the game trials. I think the last one I did was like Crash Nitro Racing. Uh, but the one I 
am ashamed to admit is what you already said. I never booted up the Genesis library before this week. It was actually Sonic Spinball, of all things, that got me to check it out finally. Like, I loved Pokemon Pinball as a kid, Metroid Prime Pinball on the DS. Never tried Sonic Spinball. So seeing it added, like, that was finally the thing that got me to try it, to actually, like, boot up the Genesis. Have, have you, either of you played Sonic Spinball? It's a long time ago on the Genesis. And I, I vaguely remember, remember it. Yeah. It's... I vaguely remember it, like, being in a... In a Sega collection pack on the GameCube, I think. Mm, uh, the Sonic Mega Collection, I think, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That collection that also had Sonic's one, two, three, and CD, and Knuckles, <laughs> and Knuckles. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a much better collection than those Sonic Origins in terms of content. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, uh, Spinball. It's 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 interesting. Um, so this is my first time playing it, and I think conceptually it does a lot more than any other pinball adaptation i mean obviously sonic like the core game sonic plays very pinball like at times you know so so just throwing some flippers on it can make it pinball and sure but if you think about it as a pinball game first like the tage and the tage the table and stage design uh are way more elaborate than other pinball spin-offs i played like pokemon or metroid like you have four five six screens you're bouncing bouncing between you like actually can sway Sonic's movement with the control stick. It just feels like more than a pinball adaptation, even if gameplay-wise, you know, needing to collect emeralds scattered around the table to unlock a boss battle. It's like the exact sort of mechanic that Pokemon Pinball and Metroid Pinball used. Um, but at the same time, man, the game... I don't know how it played on the GameCube emulation, but, you know, the Switch is emulating the Genesis hardware, right? And it is not well optimized for those Genesis specs. I mean, the game runs kind of slow the physics are weird and almost inconsistent at times like it's a very interesting take on pinball and I, it kind of something that seems like the next logical step for like game spin-offs set in pinball even though it came before a lot of them but it is not a very good pinball playing experience so this is like the perfect example of something on switch online to me because you know it's free you can go mess with it and then we're like ooh, these physics you can just never return or you can suck up the physics and go back, which is currently where my head's at, but I think I'm going to probably never return in the near future. But it's interesting to finally play it. It's kind of like one of the grandfathers of like the pinball spinoff genre. Maybe the Kirby one on Game Boy being the other. But um, yeah, so that that was my hot take on a 25-year-old game. Anyway, <laughs> um, unless... You guys have anything else on the news front? Somehow our Nintendo news discussion went back to Sega again. So I, mean, I guess I have one last thing. Um, yeah, just really quickly, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Sleepy Bas- Sleepy Blastoise Three. Um, and in danger of like you know, don't want to dox anyone. Don't want to say your your actual name. But man, huge huge thanks for. For that gift, really, really love the chat. So the fact that you found one in the packaging of Diamond and Pearl is super crazy. Like I remember seeing these like a long time ago, and like I completely forgot that there was even a marble. So now there's like a chat at marble that I have. So yeah, many, 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 many thanks. Super awesome. Super happy. I'm definitely gonna take this to the office so I can see it every day. It's crazy to me, like and really cool. That you're able, Angel, to get on a podcast, like, I can't find chat talk stuff, and then a listener 
finds it and actually sends it. Like that's super. Like even just as like a third party in this, that's super cool. Obviously, the last hashtag like, blessed. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like what a cool, what a cool little moment. Um. Okay, well with that. Let's whip it back to Sega one last time for our final segment, um, which is also about Sega-owned property. So last year, uh, as some of you that listen may recall, we introduced our anniversary series. Uh, it's a s- segment when we feel like it that reflects on a given game franchise. Wait, our what you know, series? Anniversary series. Where we – remember where we reflect on a given game franchise? You know, and it's, it, oh, like it turns 25, it turns 20, it's having a milestone year, and then we kind of look back. Whatever you saying, Jason. We did it for Donkey Kong. We did it for Sonic. We we did it a bunch, and then this year we kind of did like the genre series, same idea. But Wait, did we do one for Street genre. Fighter? Uh, we were going yes, to. We did. did we? Yes, yeah, we did. That's right. Yep. Ah, that anniversary series. Okay. Yeah, that one. But yeah, yeah um, not and the other one. Not the other yeah. one. This one. This one. Yeah. And then we did the genre series, which was like similar but different, just for a genre. But one doesn't cancel out the other. None none of these three cancel each other out because today we're going back to the anniversary series we all know and love, 25th anniversary of a series near and dear to Kevin's heart, Persona. Yeah, baby. Oh, you came prepared. Yes, I did. Angel, where was your music for Street Fighter? Not I ready. Well, That's Kevin, talk, I love Persona. This talk to us about love. why you talk about why you love Persona. Like, tell us about what it is about Persona after all these years. Should I should I talk about what Persona is? I feel like everybody should know by now, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 it's definitely not common knowledge. I honestly forget sometimes, and that's something I learned recently. Is only because I remember randomly buying Persona One at a GameStop just because I needed games for my PSP and. Then figuring it out then, but yeah. Wait, question, Angel. When you said it's something you just recently learned, do you mean you recently learned the premise, or did you recently learn you forget that you once learned the premise? <laughs> no, I recently <laughs> learned. No, like that. I recently learned. Like I want to say, like within the two, within the last like two to three years, that it was a spinoff. Like because when I, even though when I got the game, I'm, even though I had a oh, yeah, game yeah, on yeah, PSP, yeah. I still didn't even know it was a spinoff. Like you know, I went through that game. I yeah, vaguely looked some things up, but like it never. Yeah, it's hundred. It never really came out. It was just like, oh. All right, well, Kevin, it, for for folks like Angel and even I don't know a whole lot about it. Tell us about Definitely it. Jason. Yeah, just like a quick refresher. So yeah. the Persona series started off with Revelations Persona on the PS1 as a spinoff to the main Shin Megami Tensei franchise. And I don't know too much about Revelations Persona, except for the fact that, like I said, it was a spinoff. But it was, uh, you were playing as high school kids. And so the series never really took off. They had a, a sequel on the PS1 as well. I think that was called like Persona Innocent Sin or the, there was like a, there's a, a second Persona 2. Anyways, the series didn't really hit its stride until Persona 3 on the PS2. And that's where I come in. That's where I learned of the series. By then, the series has sort of evolved into... Oh, these are all JRPGs, by the way. This was sort of a dungeon-crawling turn-based RPG. But it had two separate... It had, like, two separate phases, I guess. You had your morning phase, where you play a high school student, where you go to class, you study, you hang out with your friends after school, you partake in extracurricular activities. 
And then during the night, you are dungeon crawling in this tower full of monsters. Uh, specifically during an hour called the midnight hour that starts at 12 a.m. each morning. And that is really what elevated the series into, like, I wouldn't say a household name the way it is now. But that is where it definitely started getting gaining momentum. And then Persona 4 came out and people really, really loved that game because of its cast of characters. And the game didn't really, the series didn't really hit its peak until Persona 5, which, man, I, I absolutely love that game. Why is my voice mod not working? What's not working? Nope, that's the wrong one. There it is. Oh man, you are so prepared. I'm impressed. This is probably, you know how I said that, that, uh, that song was like one of the best songs in video games, the Octo Expansion? Yeah. This is probably my favorite song of, of all time. Last surprise. The series is known for its mix of characters, its, its stories, uh, well, nowadays it is. The Persona 1 and Persona 2 are sort of like, like, uh, the black sheep of the Persona series at this point. Yeah, that game did not look at all like what I, what you were playing in Persona 5. It was like a first-person Labyrinth Microsoft Wait, that's... Like, screensaver thing. Yep. Is... Wait, the first Persona was a first-person dungeon crawler? Yes. Whoa, I did not expect that. I thought that was more Shimigami terrain in a different spin-off of Shimigami, I mean. No, yeah, it's, it's, uh, like I said, the first two, the first two are very... Compared to what the series is now, the first two are definitely much, much different beasts. Uh, but yeah, in a nutshell, that is that is Persona. You play as a high schooler during the morning, and then in the afternoons, you play as a sort of a monster killer. So, Angel, have you had any experience with the franchise besides realizing two years ago you didn't know what it was? Just Persona 1. That's kind of like I I had a little experience with Persona Three. Um, it was the one of the very first press copies of a game I got back when Ram Nintendo was a daily news site. Don't ask how I got a PS2 game, but back when Ram Nintendo was a daily news site, Atlas was. Did you even a have a PS2? No. Uh, so what happened was uh, Atlas sent me that. It was after he sent me a couple other games too for Game Boy Advance, which was crazy because they came on actual like developer wrong. So I was like, you know, this. 16 year old kid with like a like a nintendo dev kit cartridge like plugged into my game boy but anyway i took persona over to a friend's house and we played persona 3 like for like a couple days straight and actually got decently far in it it was fun but i don't know like i can't separate my mind if it was fun because it was like me and a friend playing it if it was fun because like persona was fun but i never really did much with the franchise after that even when it started circling back around to like platforms i owned um but yeah that's about as far as my memory of anything Persona goes. But Kevin, I have to imagine you have some highlights and lowlights of the franchise since you've played so many of them, right? It's mainly been highlights, honestly. Every single game that I've played, every Persona game that I've played has been solid in one way or another. Uh, Persona 3 and Persona 3 Fest, which is like this director's cut of Persona 3, fantastic games. Uh, Persona 4, I think, is a, the majority's favorite game just because of its cast of characters. But I'm not too big on the story on that one. So that one just never tickled my fancy. Persona 5 is on a whole different level. That game just oozes style. Um, and then the spin-offs like Persona 4, 
uh, Arena, which is the fighting game that the sequel just came out on Switch, I believe. Mm-hmm. Persona 4 uh, Arena Ultimate. Yep, last month. Like, those games are developed by Arc System Works. So you are getting a competent fighter. You're not just getting this, this, this like, old uh, cash-in fighting game the way that the Dragon Ball Z games were, which I'm sorry, but those, come on. Dragon Ball Z Budokai and Budokai Tenkaichi weren't exactly mechanics-driven fighting games the way that an Arc System Works fighting game is. Mm-hmm. Which, coincidentally, they did uh, Dragon Ball Fighters, so... And then I know the uh, Persona has its own spinoff with Persona Q on the DS and the 3DS, which I never got into, but I heard those games were very, very good. There are they were Persona spinoffs, but they followed the model of the Etrian Odyssey games, which I've never played, so I can't really tell you how those play. But then, like the Persona dancing games, which are just like rhythm games, which are really, really fun. And then you have Persona Five Strikers, which I talked about in this game, it's like, how do you combine Dynasty Warriors and Persona? Well, you do it by just grabbing everything that makes Persona incredibly fun and uh, unique, and you adapt it successfully, and that game was also fantastic. Persona 5 Royal is sort of the director's cut of Persona 5, and that game, apparently, I never finished it, but apparently that game's even better than Persona 5. I've, I've never had a bad experience with Persona. Obviously, you have to be into JRPGs to to like enjoy it to the maximum, but those games are on a whole different level. You know what's interesting? I was gonna while you were talking, I was like, I should look up how much Persona Q and Q two currently are on Nintendo's uh, store because you know they're delisting the 3DS and DS stuff next year. They're not there. The pages don't load. So if anyone's curious about Persona Q in particular or Q two, um. Go find it at a GameStop while you still can, like a used copy, because, uh, yeah, they seem to not be on the eShop currently, as of this moment. Or Nintendo's site is glitching, one of the two. But, but it's good to hear that there's no spinoffs that, like, didn't work. Because I feel like it's a lot of franchises. Like, when we talked about uh, Donkey Kong, and when we talked about, I don't know if we did Street Fighter, but uh, multi- Sonic, there are multiple where, like, yeah, like, this, they try and branch out the Kirby... They try and branch out the games in different directions, and some work better than others. But it sounds like Persona, even with dancing games, even with Dynasty Warrior games, even with you know whatever, it it, it it's consistently of quality, which is a rarity for an entire franchise to stay at that level. Like even Mario has his misses, you know, with like the side game. So that that's always promising to hear. So where where yeah. Kevin would you maybe want to see him go next with it at this point? So I would really love a Persona game set with college students instead of high school students. Uh, it's been high school Has students there ever been for the Japanese last... anime media with college students. If it was always high schoolers and the just as rare, well, I guess not as rare, but less frequently adults. Like I started finding yeah. a couple that are like in their thirties, but I've yet to see anything of anyone in college. I think Persona cool. 2 dealt with uh, young adults, like, just graduating high school and then getting jobs. But, yeah. But I would absolutely love to see a Persona game with, with uh, like, college, like I said, college students or even adults. Um, I, I want a Persona game also set in the past, which I think would be very, very interesting and very challenging for the developers because half of, half of Persona is, is, is you interacting with your friends. 
And how do you interact with friends nowadays by texting them? So I think that'd be like a very fun challenge for them. Um, whether it happens or not, that's a whole different story. But yeah, I, I'd per- love to see that. Persona ham radio edition, essentially. I, like I said, I don't know how you how you would pull it off, but like carrier pigeon. No, I I I don't I'd want to see it. That'd be interesting. I mean, the Pokemon Legends basically pulled that. Like Pokemon's always been modern. What if I guess Pokemon Conquest wasn't? But what if Pokemon was like set in this sort of pre uh, history version of a region, and it works? So yeah, I'm sure Persona could find a way. Yeah, maybe maybe like get some plot contrivance where like, oh, you have a Persona, you can telepathically communicate with other. Persona users, but even then, it'd be cool to know. see like an older oh, Japan. Or as and... Classic Jason puts it. Oh yeah, that, that'd be super super cool. What was that, Angel? Oh yes, remember. that's right, that's right. I once called uh, someone's persona in the game a persona thing instead of just a persona. I added yeah, a word. I remember for talking about Joker and Smash Brothers. Like, oh yeah, you got persona dude, and he does his persona thing. And I remember Kevin thought like, oh my gosh. And you're just like, you oh, need I didn't even persona? talk about what a persona actually is, huh? That's I a good totally, point. Totally no, you did. Yeah. Oh yeah, the name. Yeah, persona. Yeah, a persona <laughs> is essentially everybody's Pokemon. <laughs> like that's that's how you're by. That's how you're fighting creatures. Like you're essentially every game has a different way of summoning a persona. In persona, so in the most recent game, Persona Five, each character has a mask that they tear off of their faces, and like. It does leave like a, like a bloody mark on them, and then boom, you get, you summon your persona. Which in Persona Five, your personas were all based on like famous thieves. Uh, the that was the whole motif of Persona Five. You're you're playing as like these thieves. So you had Zoro, you had uh, Blackbeard the pirate, uh, Arsène, which is a famous French thief, and and like in very stylized forms. In Persona 4, I don't remember exactly the motif of the main character's personas. I think they were, like, Japanese gods, maybe. And that one, you, like, crush tarot cards in your hand. In Persona 3, you had these things called evokers, which were essentially handguns that you point to your head and shoot. Yeah, I remember that. Very controversial back in the day. And I'm sure it would not fly today either um i remember thinking at the time this is weird for a teen rated game because <laughs> i think no, the, these games are all m-rated they, wait was persona the, 3 m-rated oh yep persona 3 is m-rated maybe it's weird for me as a teen to play is what i was thinking of. <laughs> maybe uh but yeah those are those are m-rated games persona they're they're very they can those games could get very very dark especially persona 3 persona 3 is absolutely is is incredibly dark. That's probably its most mature story between all all three of the more recent Persona games. Although Persona Two does get incredibly, incredibly dark as well, from what I've read. But yeah, love the series. If you love JRPGs, play these games. They are fantastic. And just put a pin on it a little. Um, bring it to Switch, Persona Five. Like, what is going on? Atlas, come on. Yeah, Persona 5 is like a perfect fit for the Switch. It makes I'm no sense. I'm surprised that it, that it still isn't here. Like, We got multiple spinoffs. Know, they, they brought, yeah, two <laughs> spinoffs. A Persona 4 fighting, a Persona fighting game, and a Persona 5 Musou. And, yet, and those no... are way more challenging to to do on the Switch than, you know, a uh, 
just a regular Persona game. And never mind Joker in Smash. You know, they oh, put... and Joker's in Smash. Yeah, yeah like, which, come on. Like, was... that's such an easy marketing opportunity when it happened. can't believe it's this many years removed and they still didn't do it. We're yeah, seeing... I think that's that's what everybody was expecting during that reveal, too. I was like, oh, the the card is going to turn into, like, a... that's so when that trailer came up, right, and yeah. then you see the white the white box, and I was like, oh, that's going to become a Switch screen, and then the Joy-Cons are going to, like, slide down, you know? Yeah, and it never did. Like, oh, Persona 5's on Switch. And then, no, it was the invitation to Smash, which I lost my mind when that happened. I think I was texting you guys. You were. Yeah, I, uh, that was, that might be, besides Persona 3 with that friend for like a week, that's my one and, uh, my, my only other Persona memory. But it's a good because, yeah, it, the reveal, I was at the game. Like, in, in the room was like so confused, but so excited. Cause, you know, the people that go to the game awards know what Persona is for the most part. And, like, just the way they, like, glitched out the awards and, like, hijacked it, which they've since done that stunt, like, two, three more times. But that was the first time they'd done that. And, like, just, like, this, when the sound cue went, came in, like, when I did the, like, whoop thing, you know, when it flipped, like, everyone was just like, wait, what? And it just, like, kept building. And, like, it was really cool to experience live. Yeah. I can't imagine what a diehard fan like you were, like, what was going to your head in the moment. But even as, like, kind of an outside observer, it was, like, uh, this is a cool moment that Nintendo never recreated with any other Smash character. Yeah, except yeah. maybe, I don't know, not even sorry for me. Yeah, and I feel like the other ones, they're, you. I miss, like this is what kind of sucks about E3 kind of dying. I miss, and Nintendo going digital, I miss uh, the live audience reactions. Like people go to Nintendo New York and like there's always footage of like, look at these two dozen fans like hooping and hollering at the 15 foot screen when they show a character. But like they'll hoop and holler at anything because they want to be in those videos. They want to go viral. I feel like some are maybe generally excited, but like they, they, they over, they like, uh, you know, overperform a little because they want to like, be like, yeah, we're at the Nintendo and we're going to be loud. But like the moments when it actually happened, like in the back in the day at E3, where it's like things were generally surprising or like Joker at the game awards, like those reactions always like add a level of hype to anything that we're kind of missing with every other reveal. Cause they were all just like on YouTube and spamming sure. the chat. Isn't the same as, you know, being there. You can stand up and be like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, but like it's not the same as like being in that element, being with that crowd. Or seeing that crowd, you know, like the Zelda Twilight Princess reveal in like 2004, like that, where like journalists were like crying. Like that's like, it's absurd and ridiculous, but it's like one of those things like it really like captures a moment. So Joker fortunately got to be one of the final characters to ever have a moment like that. Yep. And that's Persona, I guess. Yeah, baby. Love Persona. Do you have, uh, did you, oh, you don't have a queued up, like, outro song for your Persona segment? No, I didn't this time. All right, well, that's okay. We'll have our outro music here in a sec, because that does it uh, for this episode. So we'll be back with a doozy on May 8th. Uh, we have both impressions of Nintendo Switch Sports, and oh yes, am I excited. We have Nintendo's full year fiscal report. I can't wait to spout those sales numbers. It's going to be so great. Um, but in the meantime... You should probably follow us on Twitter at Ram Nintendo so you don't miss your chance to win one of the eShop codes for Terrabane, as we mentioned earlier in the show. And you can subscribe to us on all your podcast apps of choice. You name it, we're there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn. Uh, I'm trying to think of one I never... Overcast, is that a thing? Um, also, we're on YouTube. RamNintendo.com is the name. And... um you may see a random Nintendo pop-up. In fact, if you didn't look at your feed lately, we had one just last weekend. 
So you never know when it'll come back. Um, but yeah, Kelsey Foss individually. I am JSR7 on Twitter. Uh, Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O on Twitter. Oh, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. I almost, wow, I misspelled it for the first time ever. Uh, and Kevin is KVN Gomi, which I did not misspell. Um, but yeah, I think that does it. So, Kevin, final word? Put Persona 3, 4, or 5, and or 5 on Smash. <laughs> <laughs> on Smash on Switch. <laughs>